Thank you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. Good morning, Sozo. How's everybody doing this morning? Merry Christmas. Thanks for, thanks for making us a part of your Christmas Eve morning. Uh, it's, it's good to be in the house. It's good to be together. Uh, we are in the midst of a series, kind of coming to the end of a series, rather, uh, in the Gospel of John. However, um, we, we, because of this, we know it's Christmas. We're, we're aware. We're aware that it's Christmas. Uh, but we have decided, uh, rather than leaving this Gospel of John, rather than leaving this time together, we've decided rather to spend Christmas at the cross. But before we get to that, I want to just re-invite you. I know you're already invited on video, but in person. I invite you to come on back here tonight, uh, 4.30, for uh, an evening really of, of reflection, of contemplation, of scripture reading, of carol singing, and of candlelight. So come on back uh, together tonight at 4.30. Uh, it's going to be a good time. If you don't like it, we'll give you your money back. Because it's free. Um, as I mentioned already, jumping into the word this morning, because uh, I know we've all got stuff to do and, and, and people to see and family to avoid having conversations with, um, I want to just uh, kind of point us back to, to where we're at in the midst of this series. We, we believe that the Lord has invited us to spend Christmas at the cross. Everybody say Christmas at the cross. It's important for us to recognize that. Christmas without Calvary is missing a vital and important piece of the story. Amen. That Christmas without the cross really is ultimately unfulfilled. Which, which, which ought to inform us that the cross was not an unforeseen or unexpected or even, please hear me, an unplanned part of the Christmas story. Rather, it is the ultimate culmination of the Christmas story. The cross and the resurrection are the culmination of this. What I hope that we see is that ultimately the incarnation was for our restoration. That the incarnation, that Jesus becoming flesh, that God becoming one of us was not him coming on some sort of sightseeing trip to just sort of check out the lay of the land, but rather that Jesus is on a rescue mission from the very beginning of his entry into our story, into our life, into our world. That Jesus does this, this rescue mission that Jesus delivered us by being and bringing the light of God into our darkness. Amen? Both of those things are vitally important. He has to be the light of God in order to defeat our darkness. But him being the light of God and remaining distant from us does nothing to defeat our darkness. It is the, it is the coming together of him both being and bringing, of him, of him embodying the light of God, of him being the light of God, and that that light stepping into the darkness of the human experience, the human condition, is what delivers us from the darkness. What do we mean by darkness? We like to define things around here. We know it's dangerous. Once something's defined, come on somebody, it means that we are accountable to it, which is why I think we like to leave things undefined. <laughs> if I don't know what something means, I don't, have to, I don't have to do anything with it. 
But we want to define what do we mean by darkness. By darkness, we simply mean the deception that produced depravity, delusion that produced depravity, which ultimately results in our death. That in the very beginning, God made all things good and wonderful and beautiful, and yet in the midst of this wonderful, beautiful, perfect creation, we as a as a species, as, as, as humanity, represented in our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose to believe a lie. That lie simply boils down to this, that God is something other than good. That God hides good in what he claims to be bad. And this all manifested in us doing this act of eating, the Bible says, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That simply means that we chose for ourselves to say, I can pick for myself what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong. I can make my own decisions. I don't need to be in an abiding, resting, trusting relationship with God. I can do stuff on my own. We rejected God and we rebelled against his good ways all because of a lie we were told by a serpent in the beginning. This deception produced a delusion within us, simultaneously inflating and deflating who we are, believing we were something we're not, and not believing the beauty of all that God created us to be. So we have deception about him, delusion about ourselves, and this results in depravity in our lives. All manner of wickedness, sin, and horrendous behaviors, all of the problems, all of the issues, all of the pain, hurt, and strife in our world resulted from this lie that we believed, and ultimately this deception grew into a tree choking out the very light of God, producing death within our souls. And I want to remind you, that's, that's darkness, but come on, Jesus delivered us by being and bringing the light of God into our darkness. Amen? He does this. Jesus takes upon himself every aspect of our darkness. Encourage you, I don't have time this morning, but I encourage you, go back. If you're curious about this, listen to the last few weeks. We unpack how Jesus took every single piece of this and destroys it. And I have very good news for you. Yes, we are all born under darkness, but here's the good news. Here's where Christians get excited. Jesus finished his rescue mission. Jesus is victorious. So we've been sort of looking at this account of the last peace that Jesus took upon himself, our death. And we, we sort of came to an end of that last week, but some of you may have noticed I, I purposely skipped over a few verses because I wanted to save them for this morning because I felt like it was appropriate given Christmas Eve that we kind of look at these, these few things. So I want us to understand where we're at in this story. Jesus has gone through his false trial. He's been falsely convicted. He's, he's been tortured. He's been beaten. He's been abused. He is now hanging on a cross naked and, and bruised, battered, and bloody. The, 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 the prophets tell us he is so marred that he is no longer recognizable as human. And he hangs upon a tree. He hangs upon a cross. And as we turn to these verses, I want us to keep that in our minds. So let's stand to our feet for the reading of God's word as we turn to John chapter 19, verse 25. As Jesus hangs on a cross, as Jesus bears the weight of our anger and our wrath and our judgment toward him and toward God, as he bears the weight of our sin, as he takes upon himself our punishment, we read these words. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Let's pray together this morning. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the scriptures. Can somebody say thank you to Jesus for the word? Come on. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the whisper in the midst of your word, God. Thank you that you have left us with, with, your, with the scriptures so that we might learn to hear your voice. As your people, we know that we are given the gift of knowing your voice. You said that your people know your voice. We rejoice, God, over your voice. We rejoice over your word. We rejoice over the whisper that comes into our spirits. Oh, that we would be a people that would not rejoice at the fulfillment of your word, but we would rejoice at the hearing of your word. Not, not, not because of some, some, some delusion that, that makes us believe that that's all we need, but rather from a conviction knowing that you are not a man that you should lie. So if you've said it, if you've spoken it, it is as sure and it as, as true as if it were accomplished. Yes, that we might rest in your word, but Lord, I'm asking that we go beyond resting in your word to rejoicing at your word. That we would respond in joy to what it is you would say to us as your people. Let us receive it. Let us rest in it. But let us rejoice in it, God. Let us respond in joy to what it is that you say to us. Don't let us think that just hearing is enough. God, we want to we respond to your word. We want to be obedient to your word. And so we come to you today asking that you would speak, that we would have ears, that we would receive, that we would rest, that we would respond, that you might be glorified in all of your creation and the world might know the good that comes from knowing you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. Why don't you high-five somebody real fast before you grab a seat? Amen, amen. I want to talk to you this morning, if you'll give me a few moments. I want to talk to you this morning under the title, under the heading, Behold. Behold, seeing Jesus rightly. Now, now I, want to, I want to be super clear about something before we, before we go any further. God is a God of infinite being. That there is no beginning to who he is, there will be no end to who he is, there is no measure to the fullness of all that he is. Which means, please hear me, it is impossible to know God completely. People will, will sometimes say to me, you know, I struggle to believe in God because I don't understand him. I'm here to tell you that is a joyful good thing that we do not understand him. 
He is infinite. He is beyond our comprehension and our understanding. He is infinite. We will spend all of eternity. We will run out the clock, and when the clock is broken and there is no more time, come on somebody, we will still be exploring the the depths of all that he is, never to find their bottom without denying or diminishing that reality one bit, I want us to also understand this. It is impossible to understand God completely, to know him completely, but it is absolutely imperative, vital, and necessary for, me, for us to know him correctly. See, some would say, well, because he's not able to be known completely, then we just can never know God. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying we can know him in all of the ways he makes himself known to us. Will we ever exhaust all that he is in our exploration? No. This is why we will forever worship him. This is why, this is why in eternity, angels continue to surround him. And as they, as they go around him, they continue to cry out, holy Whole, they're, see, they're not bored. They, they haven't, listen, listen, it's not that they, how do I say this? It's not that they don't have anything else to say. It's that that is all there is to say. Holy simply means otherly. It means other than. So as they see a new aspect of him, they realize afresh and anew how utterly different he is than everyone else. And so the only word, come on, that there is to describe that is holy. It's impossible to know God completely. It is, it is an imperative to know God correctly. So as we, as we look at the cross today, as we, as we look at Jesus today, my hope is that we get a right picture of who he is. Amen? You know, it's, it's been said that when the pressure is on, when, when things get difficult, who we really are comes to the surface. Am I, am I the only husband in the room that's had to say to his wife, I didn't mean that? Here's the, here's the problem. The truth is, we don't mean it now, but we meant it then. What came out was within. When the pressure is on, when the squeeze happens, what's inside comes out. Another way we see this is, is that when, when resources, especially time or finances, are limited, how many of you know your priorities become very, very clear? In an abundance, sometimes it's, it's hard to tell where priorities are, but when, when resources get limited, when there's a, when there's a, when there's a tightening of the, of the funnel, all of a sudden, things that used to be important stop being important. One of, my, one of my last jobs at the church that we served at in, in Montana was a large church, and, and 2008 hit, and the financial crisis hit, and so the, the, the overall giving of the church went down. And so we'd been struggling to try to figure out how, to, how to, to be good stewards of what was coming in. People were still being generous, just like we are here, amen? But, but come on, think the reality of the situation was that, that finances over the whole nation and therefore in our church were, 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 were getting tight. And so, so the, I was part of the executive team of that church. It's a very large church. And so, so the, the executive team uh, voted for me to be the one to have to figure out how we were going to fix the budget. Um, I don't even handle the budget in my own house. So they decided this was a good learning ter- curve. And so uh, here's, here's what I've learned. This is just free advice. 
When I don't know how to do something, which is very often, I go to the one who knows how to do everything, which is Holy Spirit, and just go, what, what do I do? And we'd tried this before. We'd gone to different department heads and leads of, of, of the church and said, like, hey, we've got we've to we've figure out how to cut about 30% from our budget. What can be cut? And they all said the same thing. No part of my budget can be cut. Every single penny of my budget is absolutely 100% necessary. Nothing could be, nothing could be changed. I said, oh, okay, okay. So we'll go to the next one. We, we tried this a few times. And so finally, the executive team said, Mark, you've got to do this. Just go make the cuts. And I thought, I, I really don't feel comfortable with this. And so I prayed. I just asked the Holy Spirit, what do I do? And he gave me a word. So I brought in all the heads of, uh, all the, heads of the departments, and I sat them all down. And I said, here's the deal. You guys all know we have to cut the budget by 30%. Yes, we do. But there's nothing in, our, I, I know, nothing in your budget is going to be able to do. So what we've decided to do is just cut everyone's salary by 30%. Every single one of them said, you know, I have this thing over here that could totally be, totally, we don't need this printer, and I, you know, I don't even need my computer, I don't need my office, I don't need my assistant, I don't need it. Come on, when, when resources get tight, what's important to people instantly becomes available. Instantly becomes seeable. Okay, so, so what, what I want to I say all that to say this, if there was ever pressure on a person, pressure is on Jesus at this moment. If ever resources were limited, time was limited, I would say Jesus is earthly, and again, what we're speaking of, of from an earthly perspective is time is limited. His moments on the cross are, 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 are there. And in this moment, we see what's important to Jesus. It becomes very clear in this moment, what does he notice, what does he see? He makes these two statements Behold your son, he says to his, his earthly mom, and behold your mother, he says to the beloved disciple. Now, if you've been tracking with us at all through this, or you're familiar with the scriptures, maybe you know this, but maybe if you haven't or you're not, maybe you don't. John is the author of the Gospel of John, but he doesn't refer to himself by name anywhere within the Gospel of John. We know who he is because some of the stories are in other Gospels, in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. And they'll name him, but when John tells the story, he simply refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I've made this proposal to us as a church. If you ever have the option of being known by your name or by your standing as the one who is loved by Jesus, you should always choose to be known as one loved by Jesus. Amen. So John really finds his identity in being the beloved of Jesus and the beloved of the Father. Jesus makes these statements. Behold your son, behold your mother. I want us to understand what does he mean by behold. This, this is one of those words that we kind of know what it means because we don't know what it means, but we know how it's used. It's, I think most of English for most of us. I want to dive into the, the Greek here again. The, the New Testament is written predominantly in Greek. And so here we see this Greek word. This Greek word for behold is edu. It's the Greek, if you want to look it up in the, in, in the, the um, a lexicon, it's Greek word G2400. It means behold or see. It's most often translated behold or see. Its actual definition it's a little bit, it helps things get a little bit clearer. It's something specified which is unexpected but sure. That makes it slightly less clear. What it is, is it is a declaration that makes something so. When Jesus declares, when he says, behold your son and behold your mother, he is making them mother and son in that moment. 
The behold is the declaration that makes it so. Jesus is installing a family connection between two people that did not previously have a family connection. I want us to see why this is so important. This shows us what is important to Jesus. It gives us a clearer picture of who Jesus is. It shows us that Jesus cares for those he loves. Jesus, at the depths of his despair, at the height of his hurting, at the mountaintop, come on, of his misery, he sees people he loves and his desire is to take care of them. He wants to care for those he loves. Even in his pain, he loves. Next thing we see about Jesus is that Jesus fulfills his responsibility. Culturally, Jesus was the firstborn of his mom, which means culturally it was his job to be both the provider, hear me, and the provision for his mom. He's leaving. He knows this. He's, he's changing his, his relationship with the planet, and so because of that, he knows his mom's going to be without a provider, without provision. He knows his best friend is going to be left separate and segregated and off on his own. He's the only one there. The rest of the disciples have left. He sees two people who would otherwise be alone, and he says, you know what? I'm going to take responsibility for that which I love. And I'm going to connect them in a way that they were never connected before so they can mutually provide for one another. Jesus cares for those he loves. Jesus fulfills his responsibility. Jesus, at the same time here, is elevating the concept of family. Family is not a trivial thing. Can I say it this way? Family is not a secondary sort of approach or, or working of God. Do you know that God invented your family before he invented the church? I, I, my wife and I served in youth ministry for, for about 12 years. We're back serving in youth ministry now. Pray for us. Um, uh, we're, we're, and, 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 and while we were in youth ministry, I got the, I got the privilege of getting to, to, to train and equip and go speak to other youth pastors and help equip and encourage them on several occasions. And, and often at these sorts of things, uh, where I'd be speaking at a youth camp or a youth conference, they would do like a, a training session for youth pastors where I would pretend like I could train all these youth pastors and knew what I was doing. Uh, they would often have question and answer time. This was, this was the time I simultaneously loved the idea of and hated the execution of. What I learned very quickly was I was going to get asked one question every single time. Here was the question. How do you balance family and ministry? And I had lots of really clever, cool answers that really meant nothing. Things about fulcrums and moving and shifting stuff. Listen, listen, truthfully. Stuff I had heard other people say but didn't understand but was impressed with the way it sounded, so I would just regurgitate that back to people. Am I the only one who's ever done this when asked a question? But here's ultimately what I came to. I finally, finally listened to my own advice and said, hey, Holy Spirit, what do I say to this? I know I'm going to get this question, and I'm sick of just regurgitating other people's answers. And he led me to the revelation I just shared with you, that God invented family before he invented the idea of ministry. Now, that doesn't mean that family trumps ministry. We should just never do ministry instead of family. What that means is if God designed family and God designed the church, those things cannot be in, in opposition to one another. They're built to be in harmony with one another. 
Our families ought to be the primary place where we do ministry. Ministry ought to be a place that welcomes and enjoys and makes space for our families. It's why we have kids' ministry here. It's why we have so many activities. It's why we have a youth ministry. It's why we have it because we don't believe they're in conflict with one another. We believe they're meant to fulfill one another. Jesus elevates the concept of family. Even on the cross, he, he makes room, he makes place for family. He also shows a very, very, very interesting thing here. We know elsewhere in the scriptures that Jesus had other brothers. Mary had other sons. And yet he does not entrust his mom to one of his earthly, his biological brothers. He entrusts his mother to his born-again brother. Meaning that our second birth trumps our first birth. That our newborn family ought to be more of our family even than our biological family. Now, many of us get to rejoice at having a biological family that is born again. Amen? But Jesus elevates the whole concept, the whole idea of family. The last thing we see of Jesus here is that Jesus entrusts beloved to beloved. He entrusts the one who birthed the beloved to the one who now carries the awareness of being beloved. He, he entrusts these together. He joins them together. When we, when we step back and we look at all of this together, we see a clear picture of Jesus and a clearer picture of the cross. We see that the cross is about love. Come on, Christians, I need you to hear that. The cross is about love. For too long, we've seen the cross singularly as about wrath, about anger, about judgment. I don't have time this morning to talk to us and, and, and help us realize that the wrath of God is the love of God. I sometimes get, I sometimes get um, questioning emails. Emails challenging me to say, you know, you talk a lot about the love of God, but you used to talk about the wrath of God. You need to go back to talk about the wrath of God. This is, what they, this is what they're implying. You've got to balance the love of God with the wrath of God. Essentially what they're saying is you ought to paint a picture of God with one arm flung open wide and with one arm flung open with a sword in it, a belt in it, a bat in it. We want to make God out to be like the seal of America. Sure, the bird in one hand, right? The bird in one hand, the, the, the eagle in one hand has, has peace, has, has olive branches, but in the other it has arrows. We want to make God like that. But what we need to see is that the wrath of God is the love of God pointed at everything that's trying to kill that which love loves. The cross is about love and how love provides for its object by making entrance into family and igniting, come on, a nexus, a chain reaction of birthing and bearing and birthing and bearing beloved into the earth. What I hope you see in this is that in love, Jesus makes a way for our inclusion into his divine family. I don't, I don't want to burst anyone's bubbles here this morning too hard, but I, I do need to. God is not Santa Claus in the sky. Not in any way. He's not, he's not making a list and checking it twice. He's not, okay, this, this, that, that one maybe Christians are mildly okay with. Here's the one that Christians aren't going to be okay with. 
He does not care who's naughty and who's nice. He's not waiting up in heaven to say that if you do the right, enough of the right things and don't do enough of the wrong things that he'll bring you presents. He does see you when you're sleeping. <laughs> Just going through the list. Some things. By the way, one of my children is convinced that Santa needs to be brought up on stalker charges. And the problem is they make a very good argument. Um, but that's not God. He's not some white-bearded, far-off distance, but you'll never really see him and you'll never really know him entity or being. The truth is, according to the scriptures, God is one, and yet truly God is three in one. This is important for us to grasp because we need to understand that, that Jesus loving us is an outflow of who he is, not a need for something from us. God is Father, Son, and Spirit, living in perfect intimacy and perfect harmony with one another from all eternity and for all eternity. God is perfect love, the Father, loving perfect love, the Son, loving perfect love, the Spirit, loving perfect love, the Father, until all they are is one, lost in the swirl and the spin of love. The ancient church fathers called this the perichoresis of God, literally translated as the swirling, spinning dance of divinity. We now call it the Trinity. Some call it the Godhead. The reality is it's who he is. And that perfect love, this is what I, you, you, you came here this morning to hear this whether you are aware of it or not. That perfect love has made a way for you to be included in that perfect love. No one's excited about that. I'm just going to believe that you're so overwhelmed by it, you don't have words. Jesus in love, come on, makes a way for your and my, and here's where it gets difficult, the entire world's inclusion into his family. Jesus, I'm going to put it as simply as I can. Jesus became a part of our family so we might become a part of his family. This is why Christmas, come on, without the cross, is lacking. Now, these are the two declarations that Jesus makes. He says, behold, but, but in, in, in studying this, and I've done a good job of, of saving some time, so we're going to spend it on this. In, in declaring these beholds, as I, as I began to study this, I realized Jesus makes two behold declarations, but prior to this, two behold declarations were made about Jesus. And I think it's important. I think there's something of value for us to see in going back and looking at these. So back in John 19, verse 5, Pilate, the governing authority over the, 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 the nation of Israel at the time, makes a behold declaration to the nation of Israel about Jesus. Here's what he says. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold 
the man. Everybody say the man. Behold the man. Now, now let's, let's, let's remember, let's remember, let's remember. Behold, right? Edu. The declaration that makes it so. But that's not the word that Pilate uses. See, 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 Jesus uses this word, a declaration that makes it so. Pilate uses a utterly different word. He uses the word ide. Everybody say ide. Ide also is translated behold or see. It's sometimes translated low if you have the old King James. I remember a day, my dad, we were, we were living in Texas and went to a new church and somebody asked my dad what he did. My dad was a pilot. My dad said, I'm a pilot. I'm a commercial pilot. I fly for Continental. And the guy said, oh, I don't believe in flying. <laughs> I said, what? You don't believe we can fly? He said, no, no, I don't believe we should fly because the Bible says, lo, I am with you always. That's Texas for you. <laughs> this, this inclusion of another word, though, informs us that this is, in fact, a different word. This isn't just a different way of saying the same thing. This is actually saying something different. Its definition means this, a declaration for something not to be neglected or missed by another. It is the simple presentation of reality. Don't miss this. There's an there's a, there's a important understanding in this revelation. So in Edu, Edu is the declaration to witness something being made true. This is what Jesus said. What Pilate says in Ide is the declaration to witness the inherent truth of something. Let me see if I can, let me see if I can unpack this for us and help us understand. It's the difference between pronouncement and presentation. So one, one of the joys that I get to have as a pastor, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna oh, this is, this is where I shouldn't be this honest, but I just don't know how to do anything else. When I first got ordained and first became an ordained minister and first got asked to start doing weddings, I um, did not like them. I didn't enjoy them at all. They seemed very awkward. They seemed uncomfortable. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, Believe it or not, you can read this whole thing, the whole wedding thing, it's not in here anywhere. So I was just very confused, and, it was, and, and the weddings I did at the beginning were awkward, and it was bad. Uh, and, and then two things happened. One, uh, a mentor of mine, I, I confessed this to them. I said, I, I'm doing all these weddings, and, and I was on staff at this large church that I told you about, and, and the pastor, he, when I got hired, he said, hey, now that you're here, I have a new rule. He goes, I don't marry and I don't bury. You have to do all of the weddings and all of the funerals. It's like, oh, goody. Can I get a root canal instead? I think I'd rather do that. So I, I confessed to this mentor. I said, I'm having to do all these weddings, and I don't, I don't know what to do. I just, I just don't like them. They're horrible. They're awful. And he goes, why? And I told him all my reasons. And he goes, you got to understand, man. If, if you pray for a sick person, they might not get healed. If you go do an evangelism crusade, no one might respond to the altar call. But if you do a wedding, even if you screw it up, they'll be married at the end. And I was like, oh. So that was the first thing that helped. But then the next thing that helped was I actually got to start doing weddings for people I loved and get to be a part of this miracle of God making something out of nothing, of taking two and making them one. And one of the most amazing things that I get to do in, in a wedding is, is at the very end of the ceremony, I get to pronounce them husband and wife. 
essentially, I get to say, behold your husband, behold your, for the first time ever, behold, look, pronounce, I pronounce you husband and wife. And then I've learned, because I've done a lot of weddings, to step out of the way while they kiss, because I don't want to be in that picture. <laughs> Every picture that's got posted of me online while watch people kiss, it just makes me look like the creepiest creeper of all time. <laughs> Like, <laughs> it's just bad. It's because if I'm smiling, that's weird. But if I'm not smiling, that's weird. So I step out of the way. They kiss. Everyone cheers for them for some reason. Yay! You found each other's lips. And uh, so that's the proclamation. I pronounce them that. But then as they turn, I get to have another amazing blessing, and I get to present to everyone else. What is now already a thing, Mr. and Mrs. whatever their names are. It's the difference. Jesus makes a, he, he pronounces your son, your mother, your mother, your son. Pilate is simply presenting a truth that is already there. When he says, behold the man, he's not making Jesus the man. He is declaring to a nation as the one in authority over it, this is the man. What do we mean? What does he mean? What does the scriptures mean by the man? I think what it means is that Jesus is the promised son. We talked about the fall at the beginning of the message. We talked about our rejection and rebellion against God. And what I want to make sure I'm very, very clear on every time I share this is this. We rejected God. He did not reject us. I'm going to say that again because Christians need to fix this in their theology. We rejected God. He rejected our rejection. He never gave up. God does not do give up. God does not do abandon. God does not do, I'm done. He continues to pursue. How can you say, no, 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 that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. There's all, I got all these verses in the Old Testament to tell you that's not true. I have one. Adam sins. He rejects. He rebels. The first thing God does is show up for their appointment to walk. They had a hangout appointment every day, the cool of the day. God would come down. They would go on a walk together. God showed up for that walk. Adam and Eve went and hid. The problem in the broken relationship is not on his end, it's on our end. We, listen, listen, I'm not, I'm not going to shy away from this. We became, we chose to be his enemy. He never became our enemy. At the very moment of the fall, as, as God is is, is pronouncing judgment, which, by the way, judgment is a good thing when you understand judgment not as a judge on a bench with a white wig and a gavel and a black robe pronouncing you innocent or guilty. That's not good for us because we all know that we're guilty. So I don't want to go hang out with that judge. But can I present another way of seeing a judge? I would say that if you ever have been sick in your life, you want to go to a doctor and you want that doctor to judge you. You want that doctor to tell you what's going on and prescribe a solution for it. This is something I've been saying to us for years, and, and I'm, I'm praying and asking the Lord how to do this with us as a church. But, but when we use the word judge, we have the idea, right, a courtroom. But did you know there's literally a book in the Bible called Judges, and there's no courtrooms in it? God gave us a picture of what a judge is. Yes, the judge in Judges that ruled the nation of Israel. Yes, they pointed out the problem, but, but it does not take a judge. Listen to me. It does. This is, this is so good. You're going to get so much out of this, I hope. 
it does not take a judge. It does not take a, 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 any gifting or any ability at all to look at something that's broken and say that it's broken. Stop being impressed by news media that just want to tell you all the problems. That doesn't take any, any gifting or talent or ability. What it took a judge to do was see the broken altar, see the broken state of Israel, and hear the voice of the Lord, declare the voice of the Lord, and know how to bring them out of their brokenness back into wholeness. That's the kind of judge that we approach. Not one that just simply pronounces our guilt, but one that calls us out of our guilt and back into right relationship. So, so God comes down, and as judge, he pronounces judgment over our rejection and rebellion. And in that very pronouncement, he makes a promise about one who is to come. This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He's, he's pronouncing judgment over the serpent, the, 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 the starting place of the deception that produced illusion, that produced depravity, that produces death. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus is the promised son. He is the fulfillment of that promise made all the way back at the very start of our rebellion. He is the head crusher. At the very moment of our fall, redemption is foretold. So when Pilate says, behold the man, he's saying, behold the fulfillment of the promise made all the way back at the beginning. He's the man come to do this. But he's also the man in another way. He is for us the new Adam. Jesus is the new beginning, the new Adam. We all affiliate, relate to our first parents. Now we can argue whether or not Adam and Eve were two legitimate, real, first human beings or whether they were, they're an allegory or a picture. It doesn't really matter because we all relate to their rejection and their rebellion. We all choose, come on, by omission and commission to say I can pick what's right and wrong for myself. I can do life outside of relationship with you. I can do it, come on, on my own. We see this very clearly. 1 Corinthians, we're going to jump around in, in chapter 15 here for just a second. It says, for as in Adam all died. Adam's, Adam's eating of the fruit, his deception, his delusion, his depravity resulted in his death. And for, for in Adam, all of us, because we live in agreement with that, all have died. Also in Christ shall all be made alive. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But is it not the spiritual that is first, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Catch this, please. When we, when we, when we orient ourselves to being in alignment with Adam, we bear the image of Adam, we bear the weight of Adam, we bear the death, the punishment, the result of Adam. But Jesus has come to be for us another Adam. See, before Jesus, Adam was the only one we could relate to. All we had, we talked about this earlier, was our biological family. 
But Jesus shows us on the cross, you don't have to be tied to your biological family. There's an identity that is superior to your biological family, and that is your born-again family. And Jesus becomes the fountainhead of this new family. He becomes for us the new, the second, can I say it, can I get an amen, the better Adam. Now I want to address something here that I've, been, I've gotten several questions about. And I want to just be super transparent. I know this is like Christmas and we got visitors and all that, but I want to just have a quick family talk. There have been some questions for me lately because of the way we're looking at the cross, the way that John presents it. I've been getting questions about this. Have you become a universalist? Do you believe that everyone's, if Jesus defeats de- deception, he defeats solution, he defeats depravity, he defeats death, does that mean that everybody is just by default born again and saved? Here's what I want to, I need you to hear me now. Right? I need you to hear me now and remember this later. I wish I could be a universalist. I really do. I wish I could believe that everyone just gets to know his love and his grace and the intimacy that we experience. I wish I could get there. My problem is this. My heart and my soul are tied to the revelation given to me in Scripture. And while these verses make it very easy to go, look, 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 all will, just as all, 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 okay, well then we're good. The problem is there are other verses that make it very clear that this is not the case. Romans chapter five, echoing very similarly to Corinthians. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who's that one man? It's not a trick question. We just read it in the, do I, do I need to go, do we need to open book test this? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through the one man. Who's the one man? Okay, good job. And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we don't die because of Adam's sin. We die because we follow in the likeness of Adam. But, but he's all we know. Amen? In our first birth, that's all we know. All we know how to, be, to, to do is to continue to follow that. Jump to verse 15. It says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of the one man, who's the one man? Good job. The one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And here's where I can't be a universalist. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of the grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Listen to me. I'm here to proclaim to you that Jesus was completely, utterly, and totally successful in his redemptive work. And he continues to honor you, listen to me, by allowing you to receive from his free gift. He's not like Adam who just says, nope, I'm your only option. You just have to be here. Jesus says, look, I love you so much. I'm going to honor you and give you the option. I love you enough to do everything that's necessary to make a way for you and still leave room for you to reject this free gift. Because that's what love does. Jesus is 
the man. He is the new Adam for us. He's not like the old Adam. Come on. Because he's better and because he honors us. Jesus is the man. But he does not just say, behold the man. Pilate makes one other shocking declaration. Verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He, this is Pilate, said to the Jews, Behold your king. Behold your king. Again, remember, he is not making him king. He's, not, he's, not, he's simply presenting the reality that this is your king. I'm blown away by this. Jesus the man is also Jesus the king. Let that sink in for a moment. These are not separate roles that he plays. This is unified in one person who knows no division in himself. The same one who is the man, the fulfillment of the promise, the fountainhead of a new new family, a new humanity, is the same one who is the king. If anyone had a right to request another fulfill this role, it would be Jesus. He is under no obligation by law or by decree to do this himself. And yet love demands that he does it himself. His very nature demands that he's the one that fulfills this. So he does not give an order to an angel to go and make a payment for us. He does not make a decree to, to, to a messenger to go and deliver the truth. No, no, no. He tried all that. He did all that. He's gone through all that. Now he comes and says, you know what? The, the message is so important. The mission is so vital. I will fulfill it myself. Where others fail and fall short, Jesus is the full and the final and the forever freedom that our souls long for. Jesus, the man, is also Jesus, the king. I need you to understand this. Notice when, when Pilate makes this declaration, Jesus has not yet gone to the cross, which means that Jesus was king before the cross. Oh, beloved, this is so freaking good, I can't even stand it. Jesus doesn't go to the cross to, to acquire his kingship or to establish his kingdom. He goes there already king. He goes there already with a kingdom, which means he did not go to the cross for his own benefit. He went there for yours. All, listen, 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 listen. All he got out of the cross was you. Now, now, now if, if you've got pride in your heart, you're like, well, yeah, that was a pretty good deal. I'm here to tell you that that response is one of ignorance. Now, don't be offended by ignorant. It just means you're stupid. It doesn't mean you're stupid. It means you're too stupid to know better. These aren't getting better. Um, Jesus goes to the cross as king. Are you catching me? He goes to the cross already victorious, already triumphant. 
We see this. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. When he was on earth, he was already the ruler. To him who loves us. Wait a second. I want, yeah, loves. What's the cross about? Love. I wonder if we would have more people interested in our message if we got our message right. That was just extra free. <laughs> to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and what? Dominion forever and ever. Amen. We see what the Father says to the Son. It says, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. He is the king forever, amen? Because he was king before he went to the cross. I read a commentary, and it was beautiful, and it talked about how Jesus was crowned upon the cross. Yes, we crowned him with a crown of thorns, absolutely, but he did not go to the cross to get a crown. The cross did not make Jesus anything he was not already, for he was the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. He was simply showing us who and what he already was and is. Jesus, the king. Jesus, the king before the cross. Jesus, the king who is the ruler of all. Jesus is not one king amongst many. He is the king of kings. Come on, church, and the Lord of lords. I've said this before, and I think there's, I think, I hope I have a chance to drill down into this deeper in the coming weeks. Jesus did not come to take our throne. He came with a throne already. He doesn't sit upon our thrones. He sits upon his throne far above all other thrones and dominions. We see this beautifully. Paul writes this in absolute glory and splendor. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 16, it says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Catch this. This is all, all that we're about to unpack is, is him saying, I want you to get this revelation. I want you to have the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what, what is it he wants us to catch? What does he wants to know? What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That's all the stuff for us. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Again, this is again why I can't just say it applies to everyone. It's why I can say he won it for everyone. It's available to everyone. It ultimately belongs to everyone, but it's not of benefit to anyone but for those who embrace and entrust it. Amen? Toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places far above how many? All rule and all authority and all power and all dominion. Yes, I know I added the all before all of them calmed down. All rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So he's the ruler of all forever. There, will never, there never was a time he was not. There will never be a time when he is not. I need you to bookmark this message and re-listen to it in how many months? Like nine months? 
eight months and some days? When, all, when you're freaking out because your person did or didn't win, the incumbent is still on the throne. The ruler of the universe is not up for re-election. He has ruled forever. He will rule forever. Oh, no, it's not about the president. It's about the Supreme Court. The supremest court is not ever out of session, nor does he ever end his reign. Come on, somebody. He has all authority, always. If that offends you, you can email me at mark at sozospokane.org, and I will read and delete your email. I'm happy to read it. I really am. I often find them entertaining. Mostly because when you're angry, you make a lot of grammar and spelling mistakes <laughs> that even a high school dropout can figure out. Um, why do y'all put up with me? Um, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things, how many things? All, all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Come on, somebody. Jesus is king. Amen? Amen? Jesus is king. The man, Jesus the man, is Jesus the king. He was the king before the cross. He is the king after the cross. He was the king on the cross. And he rules over all. Here's, 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 where, here's where I land this plane. Here's where we end this Christmas. Jesus has provided for you, come on, an inheritance within his family. That, 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 that's, that's what Paul is praying that we would get. He said, look, Jesus is this, this is who Jesus, and this is what Jesus has done, and you have an inheritance because you belong now to his family. That perfect love that loves perfect love, loves perfect love, that love that gives itself freely to perfect love while never stopping to be what it is, gives itself fully to the other, that's the family of God. Please hear me. I'm not saying he's made a place for you in heaven for you to hang out with angels. I'm saying there's, oh, there's a table and there's three chairs at the table. Father, Son, and Spirit. It's the family table. And in Christ, they pulled up a fourth chair for you to sit at the table with them. I'm not saying we become him. Come on, come on, come on. I'm saying he shares his intimacy with us. He doesn't give you a room in the house. He gives you a seat at the table. I'm going to say that again because it was way better than you responded. <laughs> he doesn't just make a room for you in his house. He made a seat for you at his table. He made space. He made a place for you and for me. The God-man king. The serpent head crusher. The one who has all authority over all power and all dominion and everything. He made a place for you to be included in himself. He became like us so that we might become like him. Let's stand to our feet. I'm going to ask the team to come back up. I, I do feel, though, as I was praying for this morning, 
throughout this week, I felt like the Lord put a few things on my heart, and if you'll let me, I'd, I'd like to kind of direct our response a little bit this morning. We believe around here that when we hear God speak, it is right and appropriate and good for us to respond. We, we really do believe this. People are just can't stand up and talk at the same time. We believe we should respond when we hear God say something. See, when, when, when you don't do that, guests think I'm a liar. Because we believe it's right and good to respond, we've built it into the, 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 the structure of how we do things. And so we've, we've, we've built in some, some time of response. We respond three ways. Celebration, contemplation, communion. We celebrate. We sing. We rejoice. Amen? Amen. We contemplate. We, we do not think, I need, I need, I, this is a place where I need some backup. We are not a people, we are not a church, we are not a movement, we are not a body that believes that Christians have to check their brains at the door. Amen. We don't think being spiritual and being intellectual are, are separate things. But we believe that God gave us our intellect, he gave us our minds, he wants to speak to us. Therefore, we think it's good to think deeply. Amen. I, oh, that we would be a people like the Bereans that respond and receive in joy but then do the work of going deep with what we have received and responded to. So we take some time for contemplation. And we take some time for communion. We, we commune predominantly in two ways. We commune with the Spirit of God through the gift of the elements of the table. Psalm 23 tells us that God prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. I'm here to tell you that this is the table that is prepared for us in the presence of our enemies. The table that is set, the meal that is set before us as the family of God is not a meal he went out and purchased. It's one he provides of himself, his broken body and his shed blood. Often referred to within the church as communion. We believe as a people that while this was given to us to help us remember, it is, more than just, it is more than just symbolic, but there is deep spiritual significance to what takes place here. That God meets us at his table and we commune with him. We take by a method known as antiquation where we take a piece of bread. We also have gluten-free uh, wafers along the edges here. If you need those, we would make those available to you. If you don't need those, I would highly encourage you not to eat them. But if you need them, they're there. We take a piece of bread or wafer, we dip it in the juice, and we partake. Let me be clear, these tables are open to all who have put their faith in Jesus. All believers are welcome at this table. If you're a guest here with us, you're visiting, and you're, well, I go to this kind of church, I go to that kind of, I don't know if I agree with all your theology. You, listen, we rejoice over the oneness of the body of Christ even when we disagree. We still say we're family. So if you're a believer, we make room for you at this table. If you're not, if you're, if you're still here and you're still, you're still wrestling through this idea, there, there's still, a, there's still a, a desire in you to live your life outside of intimacy and harmony and love with the Father and love with Jesus, we're not going to ask you to come forward and pretend like you're a Christian and take communion with us. We're not going to ask you to pretend like you're something that you're not. 
You're welcome to just hang out in your chair, hang out in your seat, hang out there. And here's what I like to say to people, and sometimes people get offended, but I mean, add one more to the list this morning. No one's going to notice if you don't come up. No one here is watching to see who's coming up and who's not. But there is one who will notice. And that's the one whose body we partake of and blood washes us clean. And he's not, listen, 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 listen. He's not watching to make sure you don't come up. He's watching hoping you do. That today would be the day that you would receive of the inheritance he purchased for you and be included back into the family of God. If you are not a believer, can I ask you one simple question? Why not? Because listen to me, he's better than everything. As the ruler over all, he's above all. He's better than all. I didn't say he's better than anything. I said he's better than everything. I'm not saying you can go out and find something good and he'll be better than that. He will. I'm saying you can go out and find all the good you can find, stack it on one side of a scale and put him on the other and the scale will not budge in the direction of the stuff. He is better than everything. And he comes to you not demanding, but he comes to you pleading. He comes to you bleeding. He comes to you having made a way by the tearing open of the veil of his own flesh for you to see the very heart of God that you would know that you are the object of the love and affection of God. I've got really good news for somebody this morning. God loves you and there is nothing you can do about it. You've tried your whole life to get him to stop loving you. And he says, I don't do give up. I don't do abandonment. I don't do what he does is do-overs. And this morning is your do-over. Admit and abandon the folly and the foolishness and the filth that you have tried to draw life from. And embrace and entrust the truth that he is everything that you have ever needed. He is all your soul desires because he is all your soul is designed for. Admit and abandon, embrace and entrust, and come forward and partake of the family meal together. We would also encourage you, if, if you are doing that this morning, if you're repenting and believing, if you're joining the family, we would love to be able to celebrate with you. So the other way we commune is one with another. Over here at the cross, we're gonna have a team of people waiting over there. Now they're there for you if you're joining the family, but they're also there for you regardless of your sta status with the family. If you have anything that you need prayer for, you need healing in your body, you need breakthrough in your finances, you need restoration in relationships, you need clarity in your mind, you need healing in your emotions, whatever it might be, we serve a God that hears us when we pray and responds when he hears. To put it very simply, to put it very pointedly, when we pray, stuff happens. So that team would love to stand and pray with you. Believe God for a miracle on your behalf. Specifically this morning, I felt like the Lord wanted to do something very, very, very specific this morning for some people here.
As we've talked about family, I know without needing to be prophetic, I know that there are some here that when you hear family, something twists inside of you. Maybe it's because you are a part of the family of God and you've had family members that have walked away from the family of God. So thinking about family hurts. Maybe for some of you, you've, you, 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 have, you have unresolved conflict and issues and pain as it relates to family. And I get up here and I crack jokes about avoiding certain family and you wish you didn't have to avoid certain family. But you know you have to. For some, maybe you have, you have those hurts, those pains, those issues in your family relationships. And, and I've specifically felt like this this morning and I need you to just give me a little rope here. And you say, there's no way I can fix that relationship because they're gone. For some of you, they're gone because they've passed away. For some of you, they're gone because they've broken relationship and you literally have no way to reach them or contact them or try to restore that relationship. Here's what the Spirit of the Lord told me this morning. That He is the God of the impossible. And He wants to do some restoring of relationships that you have claimed to be impossible. They've gone too far away. They've embraced things that aren't, that they've embraced lies too much. They've gone away. They've moved away. They've broken relationships. They've cut ties. They've passed away. God can do a miracle of restoration. And this is the part that I wish he didn't say. Because I want to get up here and be a good TV preacher and say in the next 24 hours, it's all going to be made better. So send your check. But unfortunately, I disqualified myself from being a TV preacher because my wife knows how to put makeup on. She'll talk to me about it later. Don't worry. What I, what, I, what, I, what I feel like the Holy Spirit said is this. He wants to plant that seed in your heart today. And this is, this is literally what I felt like he, he encouraged me to encourage you. First off is this. That all he's asking of you is to forgive the way he forgives. And you need to understand that forgiveness is not letting that person off the hook for what they did. It's letting yourself off the hook of pain and bitterness for what they did. I don't, I don't mean to be hard or harsh, but the likelihood is the person that you are so bitter and angry about doesn't care that you're bitter and angry. It's not bothering them at all. The seed that he wants you to plant in the soil, the seed he wants to plant in the soil of your heart today, is this simple whisper of, I forgive you. Now, I, I, wanna, I wanna be really clear. I believe that's the seed he wants to plant in some of your heart. You say, well, the person's, the person's passed away. They're, they're dead, they're gone. I, I'm just gonna, yet, just a whisper. Not a He's not asking for a, a shout from the mountaintops this morning. It starts with a whisper. The depths of your soul saying, I, I forgive you. As hard as it is to say, you say it one time. And what you'll find is you can whisper it again one more time. And I believe that whisper, that seed of forgiveness, if you'll continue to water it by whispering it, eventually it will turn into a shout. And eventually I believe God, either naturally or supernaturally, will make a way for you to stand in front of that person and forgive them. 
God wants to give you a gift this morning of the seed of freedom for your soul. For those of you who maybe are, are, are in the crowd that you've had people walk away from the Lord, he wants to give you a new seed of faith and trust. Listen, in his ability, come on, in his ability to win their hearts. It's not your job to win their hearts. I want to talk to some parents in here who've had some, some kids walk away from the Lord and you've beat yourself up because you can think of all the times you screwed up. And here's what I'm here to tell you. You screwed up every one of those times and more. Because they're talking to their therapist about stuff you don't even know about. And he is still more than able. Come on. He is still more than able. Can I get an amen from some people who used to be prodigals? Come on. My mom didn't convince me. My heavenly father convinced me. He watched on the porch until something began to come awake inside of me and remind me of who I am. He's doing the same thing for your prodigal, son or daughter. He's watching over them. He's aware of where they are. He knows it breaks your heart, it breaks his heart more, but his timing's better than your timing. And he's planting seeds in their hearts. Holy Spirit, we thank you this morning. Jesus, we thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That you rule over all for all time. We thank you that God, the God who rules and reigns over all invites me to relate to you as Father. Not just in a role, but in a relationship. To know you as Abba, as Father, as Dad, as, as my Father. And to be known as your beloved Son in whom you are well pleased. Not because of what I have done, but because of what you have done. Not because of who I am, because of who you are. Jesus, open our eyes to see you for who you really are today. For in seeing you, in beholding you, everything, everything, everything changes. Restore relationships. Renew hope. Redeem souls. Extend your kingdom. Build your church. Grow your family. In Jesus' name, church, let's respond to the Lord.